This show is created for adult audiences only. Our show notes include content warnings and other helpful information. We strongly recommend taking a moment to assess the situation before continuing. Let's begin. Episode 40. The Kecksburg UFO Incident. Thousands witnessed what appeared to be a fireball shoot through the sky over several states in the east, midwest, and into Ontario, Canada. What could only be described as a sonic boom was heard when the object broke the sound barrier and made its crash landing in a wooded area in Kecksburg, Pennsylvania on the afternoon of December 9th, 1965. Due to instant military involvement and a possible government cover-up, this case still remains a mystery to this day. It was a normal Thursday in December at WHJB Radio out of Greensburg, Pennsylvania. John Murphy sat preparing his afternoon news report, just as he did every day. The area had remained quiet for some time and he feared that day would be no different. A call came into the station, claiming to see a fireball in the sky earlier that afternoon. Though intrigued, Murphy dismissed the claim and went back to his preparations. At that point, another call came in, and another after it, till the station was being flooded by calls all claiming to see a fireball or spacecraft that crash-landed in the area. One of the most notable calls came from Frances Kaup. She stated that her sons had been outside playing when they saw what they described as a burning star crossing through the afternoon sky. Even though she did not see it herself, she saw large clouds of smoke coming from within the woods where they stated it had crash-landed. It wasn't till this point that Murphy took the claim seriously. He couldn't help but to feel like it had all been an elaborate hoax. But with so many reports, there had to have been some truth to the claims. In order to gain more information, Murphy decided to go to Kecksburg and attempt to interview some of the witnesses. He arrived near the wooded area in Kecksburg shortly after 6.30pm. He started by interviewing some of those in attendance, including Frances Kaup and her children. Please describe exactly what it is you had seen, he requested. Nevin and Nadine Kaup then proceeded to recount the events from that afternoon. We were outside playing when we heard this loud noise. It sounded like a boom, and it shook the ground. We looked up and there was this ball of fire, kind of like a burning star, that was flying across the sky. We watched it fall from the sky and land somewhere in the woods. That's when we went in to tell her mother. Frances then chimed in with her side of the story. I could hear the sound from inside the house. I didn't think a whole lot of it till the children came racing in. I could tell that they were scared and immediately ran outside. I didn't see it happen with my own eyes, but I can tell you. Something crashed in the woods. I could see a big cloud of smoke coming from it. 
That's when I called the station and then called the fire department to show them where it happened. Murphy met with a few of the others there, all telling similar stories. Some described it as the sound of a sonic boom as it came into the atmosphere. They stated that it came from one direction and rerouted its course to come down over Kecksburg. Others immediately assumed it to be otherworldly. I heard it was a spaceship carrying some spacemen, claimed another spectator. After some time spent interviewing, Murphy decided to go into the woods to see if he could catch a glimpse of the fallen object. He slowly made his way toward a glowing blue light that seemed to illuminate the woods around it. It could only be described as the type of light emitted from a welder's arc. The hum of the object became louder and louder as he inched closer. There it was. Partially planted into the ground from the impact sat an acorn-shaped object. It was large, brass-colored, and almost similar to a bell, with no seams or rivets that could be found anywhere. There also appeared to be no point of entry or anything to suggest it was a craft of some kind. However, there were strange hieroglyphic markings that appeared to be etched into the lower part of it. He couldn't quite make them out as they were nothing like anything he had ever seen. He stood there, amazed and perplexed at the odd object. He wanted to know what it was and was determined to get to the bottom of it. He could hear authorities starting to arrive in the distance and made sure to snap a couple of quick photos of the object before heading back. Once he reached the edge of the woods, he met Carl Metz, a member of the Pennsylvania State Police from Greensburg. He quickly told him what he had witnessed in the woods and requested additional details. Carl, along with another investigator, then entered the woods with flashlights and a Geiger counter to look for what they assumed to be a downed aircraft. However, this time Murphy waited for them at the edge of the woods. After some time they emerged and Murphy immediately inquired as to what they had found and what they thought it may be. However, their response was less than satisfactory. He was told that they were not sure what it was, and if he had any further questions, he would need to ask someone with the military, as that is who they were going to notify to conduct the investigation. This struck him as peculiar. Why would they immediately involve the military? Something about the situation did not sit right with him. He then returned to Greensburg and immediately went to the state police office to speak to someone in a higher ranking in an effort to obtain answers. Upon his arrival, he was met by additional state police officers, army officials, and other military-related personnel. No one had any answers to provide despite his persistence. However, they offered to let Murphy go with them, back to search the woods again. When they arrived, Murphy was told he was not permitted into the woods. They weren't allowing anyone in, aside from officials. Murphy then decided to ask some of the armed military personnel what was going on. They replied by stating, a meteor had hit the area, and that it was nothing more. But he knew the truth. It was definitely not a meteor he had seen earlier that evening. At that time, Murphy overheard some of the firemen in the area being told to return to the station, and that everything was under control. Murphy was also forced to give up two rolls of film containing some of the photos 
that he had taken earlier. By this time, he felt defeated and questioned the fact that he would get any answers at all. He left the scene and returned to Greensburg, still holding a roll of film he had hid from the military officers. Between Greensburg and Kecksburg, he witnessed many military personnel and vehicles making their way to or around Kecksburg. He knew that something bigger was at play. The Pennsylvania State Police gave an official news release that stated nothing had been found at the crash site. Several other news outlets stated that a meteor had crashed into the ground. All of the reports seemed to be conflicting and did not line up with one another. Murphy felt this was all beginning to be some type of government cover-up. He had seen other similar cases that had all resulted in the same type of behavior. Murphy worked tirelessly for several weeks, piecing together a news story on the events that took place on December 9, 1965 in Kecksburg. He developed the remaining roll of film he had, although grainy, it clearly displayed the object that he had seen that night. He also continued his interviews with witnesses and prepared a documentary titled Object in the Woods, which he advertised and was scheduled to be aired on the radio within the following days. The day before the show was set to air, Murphy was visited by two men dressed in black suits, both claiming to be government authorities. During their conversation, Murphy was told to change his story for his safety. He was instructed to alter what he had seen and redact multiple witness testimonies. If he didn't do so, he would be met with trouble or suffer a worse fate altogether. The men left, taking with them the majority of Murphy's research photographs, and audio tapes that contained his story. Murphy was furious and felt he was being forced to conceal the truth from the public. He had stumbled on a story that would change the way people think, and they wouldn't let that happen. He sat, defeated, frustrated, and saddened at the fact that he would have to let his listeners know. He then announced on the radio that he would be broadcasting an edited version of Object in the Woods due to multiple witnesses withdrawing their testimonies because they were afraid of getting into trouble with the government or the military. He went on to tell others that he was forced by government agents from releasing any information. Several other news reports surfaced Covering the story, the military released an official statement stating that it was a meteor that touched down in the woods at Kecksburg and was never recovered. Several years later in 1969, John Murphy and his wife were on vacation. Murphy had been walking across the road when he was killed in a hit and run. His death was investigated into, resulting in many inconsistencies suggesting it may not have been an accident at all. Perhaps he knew too much. Welcome campers to Campfire Tales of the Strange and Unsettling. We're your hosts, I'm Ryan. And I'm Jordan. And now the debrief. All right, dude. I love that. I love this one. I'm. It's I re- a strange one. Yeah. <laughs> I I remember from my childhood, and again, I recently rewatched the Unsolved Mysteries episode. I was about to this. ask if that's what it was. Yep. Because yes. yeah, they even they even like did a. Uh, they even like made an actual uh, craft, like made a an actual like a uh, you know whatever copy of the craft, which. Funny enough, um, yeah, 
they have it uh they have it in the town now which is pretty cool yeah that's awesome yeah the reenactment section on that episode is killer because there were like a ton of reports of this thing yeah yeah well my question about my question about the reports is did anyone see it moving the way a craft might move or was it all just reports of like it streaking across the sky well so one so one actual uh so bill uh bullbush 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 i think it's bullbush <laughs> so let's call him bill bullbush um uh, he was actually uh he he had claimed that he was out working on a chevy corvair uh, and he looked up to see a fireball in the sky that was going straight and then autumn and then instantly like jerked turned it's like turned its course basically and then headed towards Kexburg. okay so and a couple other reports were similar to that that they saw it actually Turn. change its course and move like move directions that's what i was waiting to hear because honestly of course the first thing you think is meteor Right, right, and that's the go-to for the government story, and that's exactly, and that was the official military report was that it was a meteor, and that they weren't able to actually recover anything, because that's probably what it looked like to most of the people who saw it. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. There was, uh, there were some different, uh, like, uh, people saw what appeared to be like green flames coming off of the the exhaust. Um, okay. there was a report that said, um, from Randy Overly, um, basically he, he described as a brownish gray object that was on fire and traveling overhead about 200 feet in the air. He said that it seemed to be enshrouded in a layer of vapor and made a loud hissing sound as it passed over and it crashed into the woods about two miles away. And so some others also stated that it was kind of like encased in this like vapor barrier basically yeah i know i had seen some stuff about like um uh, at some point in the past i saw a map of like all of the sightings yeah and if i recall correctly you can like see it turn several times right from like state to state yeah you know yeah like you like track its course yeah, there was one that even like almost reaches like Canada and then turns back or whatever, and then yeah. so I, it it ended up passing over. I think it was like five or six actual states, and yeah. then also Ontario, Canada. That's a huge range for a for a UFO sighting, right? Yeah, yeah. And I know, like there was some there were some reports that like said that it was going like extreme speeds. And then some that claimed that it just seemed to be like going very slowly overhead. Um, you know, so I mean, it could have also been pretty higher up, but a lot of them stated that like they felt that it was only about 200 feet up in the air. So, right. You know, it's, it's that, really I mean, kind of hard to differentiate. Yeah. To me, that could either be like it behaving like a craft as its speed varied in different yeah, locations of course. or it could just be the unreliability of like of witnesses being able to tell you what time they saw it you know what i mean right right that's true yeah yeah and all and all the reports though were they weren't too far off i mean it was all it was all within the afternoon on on that day of december 9th so which is right. which is also kind of crazy like it's literally midday not even midday, just afternoon, and yeah. you know daylight and everything, and you actually see you know, see this thing in the sky that's it's passing over. So, I, I wonder could, how easy it is to see a meteor in the daylight. That's that's what I was about to say. Yeah, so I wonder if that would that could either make it seem more like a meteor, or if that could also make it seem not so much. Because I don't, I don't know. I don't really know what it yeah. like what that would look like in the daytime. I feel like this, I don't know, this story feels less like a meteor to me than like the initial parts of the Flatwoods story. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, because that one straight up feels like a meteor to me. So this one, I don't know. I don't know. The variation is huge, right? And like a meteor being seen over six states over the course of multiple hours 
how long does a meteor just kind of hang in the atmosphere before it you know what I mean? Because that seems like a long time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think I think this is basically over like roughly a two, you know, two hour, maybe a little bit more span that like these people right. see these, you know, see this object passing over these states. Yeah. I was so, going to say like two to three hours. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. So, yeah. Which I mean, yeah. I mean, I would think I think it'd be a lot faster if it was a meteor. Right. Yeah. Or it wouldn't last as long, for sure. Right, exactly. So yeah, that's... that's I've definitely seen meteor showers, right? And mm-hmm. they don't last very long. You Near, like see them right. for a moment. Exactly. Right? For a few moments. So yeah, they, I think that, that makes this a little bit more more significant. Yeah. Now, obviously, the biggest the biggest part of this that makes it more of like a head scratcher is the military involvement. You know, I at least at least to me, like that that's what kind of just screams like this is not just a meteor. Now, they did try to claim that you know that they were going to have some like army scientists or something come and like take a look at it and that's why that they that's why like the military blocked off this area. You know, and they were literally just, you know, trying to play up the whole meteor thing. See, I, I have a theory here because the the other big option for me here is. OK, so you have to consider like the historical context in which this is all right. happening, right? This is 1965. This is like dead center of the Cold War. OK, so. What this screams to me when I heard like military involvement is they probably at least initially suspected it to be like a Soviet craft. Almost certainly. Well, we do have some theories. Yeah. See, there's another another thing that points to that to that to me or at least it it brought it up in my mind is the fact that the state police just had a Geiger counter on them. <laughs> right yeah right which was like standard issue for them during the cold war because people were terrified of nuclear stuff anything yeah. that had to do with with radioactive materials they were obsessed exactly and that's and like i said there's a couple there's a couple of theories that i'd like to kind of go over in a little bit um that yeah. we'll, we'll kind of dive into that you know kind of okay. that that idea um, and I think that'll also kind of make make a lot of sense as well. At least it does to but, me. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it kind of matches what you're talking about. Yeah, but I, I'm just saying I think the geopolitical, you know, situation that we were in at the time probably explains the extreme response. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, that that does make sense. It does. Um, yeah. you know, it just, yeah, yeah, you're right. Because I'm trying to, I guess I'm trying to like push it that much more, you know, thinking yeah. like, well, they're, they, you know, they block it off and like they tell like the fire fire department to go home and like and start yeah. telling, you know, like, yeah, even like telling the police to go home and stuff like that. And then, you know, the military, they said that they have it under control. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I mean, that could be part of it. That's possible. That's possible. Yeah. See, because if even if it were a Soviet craft, I think they probably would have behaved just like that. Oh yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Now, and say it was a an actual like alien craft, right? Yeah. They may have just been operating under the assumption that it was a Soviet craft, even though it was an alien craft. They may have. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's possible too. Um. Now, getting into. John Murphy, that you know, the, he was the first reporter on the scene, right? So, the radio guy, yeah. And their their station had gotten a lot of calls about you know this object in the sky over the afternoon, and he dismissed a bunch of them until I mean until it, like until they were basically flooded with calls. So I mean, right. he doesn't get there until roughly six thirty p.m. You know, or after, and this is all happening around noon that day. 
Um, you know, so he doesn't take anything seriously, and then finally makes the like makes the decision. Okay, he talks to you know Francis Cobb. She like tells him their sto- her story and everything, um, and decides to go check this out, whatever it may be. You know, he had no real expectations. He was just out there, but then he actually goes into the woods and takes pictures of this thing. Now, the thing about this is. Yes, the military took two rolls of his film, but he also was able to hide one of them. And so he ended up getting the film developed. And uh, according, and I can't remember her name right now, uh, one of the the ladies that also worked at the radio station with him claimed that she had seen the pictures and said that they were dark and grainy, but you could see the woods, like the, you know, the forest. And then you could also see what was clearly this bell-shaped object. Okay. So, you know, like, yeah, maybe maybe that was a thing to help his story. Who knows? Sure. But that was another person that you know, at least claimed to actually it. see. Right. To see the photos. Yeah. See, that the pictures are huge, right? Mm-hmm. But... Another thing is like the shape of the craft is super unique. Yeah, that that's right? one of the biggest things for me is it's it's yeah. very unique. The the hieroglyphs on it remind me of like Rendlesham Forest. Yeah, that craft had the like random hieroglyphs on it. Or, Unfortunately, he didn't go up and touch it like they did in Rendlesham. Right. Yeah, I was gonna say like the a, uh, the Aurora one too. <laughs> yeah, oh, man. Yeah. Written on a notepad. We have to. We have to. Yeah. But yeah, now that that's what's also pretty cool. Like, you know, and and also unique about the situation. Yeah. It's just the markings. And there was um there was uh someone I I can't remember if he was a professor at um at like a university or or who it was. I stumbled upon it and I I just don't have it in my notes now. But I stumbled upon his thing and he had he had seen or managed to get uh like a, a hold of one of the pictures had seen one of them and then started trying to look into some of the actual markings and okay. like judged it against like or i guess studied it in comparison to a lot of different languages and it was nothing of any language that he could find to compare it to nice you know, He's so like a linguistics guy. Right, yeah. So that's another, you know, at least bit of information that does support it. Yeah. Being, you know, more than just a meteor. Yeah. I mean, I don't know too many, I don't know too many meteors that have been, you know, recovered with hieroglyphs <laughs> carved into them. Right, yeah. Right. I mean, you're right. You're right. Exactly. Yeah. So there were, I mean, there were a lot of different reports. Um, there were a lot of reports from from people either being in the area, you know, a, a lot of a lot of children, of course, like being outside, seeing this object overhead. Um, adults as well, like I said, just with uh, Bill uh, Bullbush, him actually seeing as he was working on his car. Um, there were. Uh, a brother, two brothers, uh, Rob and Randy Lay, which to me, I yeah, just I can't I can't get over that name. But regardless, uh, so they sound they, like background characters in King of the Hill <laughs> or Trailer Park Boys. Yeah, I think of Randy yeah. Randy Leahy, Leahy. Obviously, you yeah, know, it's not Randy Leahy, but still. Uh, right, so they were out riding their bicycles when they saw an unfamiliar object gliding through the sky overhead. Um, they said it was about treetop level. It was coming in at an wow. angle, and they knew it was going to hit the treetops as it went down in the woods. Um, That's, so they were right at Kecksburg, too? Yeah. Yep. That's It's amazing to me that more people didn't, like, rush toward the crash. Right. You know that's you know? that's one of the bigger the bigger things, and the biggest one is Francis Kaup. It was it was closer to her property property than anywhere, and they just call a radio station. 
Yeah. <laughs> so that's where it's very of us, odd. Yeah. I, I think like maybe that timing doesn't quite add up to like what I, you know, what I've kind of researched. Like, yeah. I'm sure the timing is a little bit different. You know, like the series of, of events may have been a little bit different. Um, also, I think that like, I don't know that it's hard to to put yourself in the mind of someone living in 1965 right you know like do you call the police before you report something to like an independent news source or do you do you call the news first yeah i don't know that's a good question yeah you know like what is gonna get it you know i mean obviously you want it more widespread right and at this point like this is very fresh. This has just happened. Right. So it wasn't, she didn't, you know, like, of course, like radio stations and things like that started reporting on it right away once they started getting calls. Yeah. And like, of course, WHJV wasn't the only station around, you know, to get, yeah. to get calls about it and everything. Like it just became a thing that people actually started hearing about it. And so one thing I had read was, that you know they had, they had seen it she had well she had seen like the smoke and everything and it wasn't until after she started hearing some reports on the radio that she decided to call a radio station and and file or, you know claim a report um and so yeah that makes sense right you know so we see maybe that we've seen that's why that's some that's a phenomenon we see over and over again in like UFO cases and cryptid sightings and like once they see other people out there, then they're like, more. Uh, I feel right, more comfortable exactly. joining in, right? Because a lot of people are paranoid that they're going to be like the weirdo, you know? And I always go back to like Lizard Man. Yeah, right? of course. The, and like that, how that fake sighting encouraged the real sighting report to come out. Yeah, I think it's just yeah. knowing that someone else out there is seeing this and experiencing this too. Yeah, you know, you know, you're, you're not like alone. I'm not going yeah. crazy. Yeah. Exactly. It's just that you know, just that like acknowledgement of you know someone else, someone else experiencing. It. Yeah, I think I think that that's what makes you know, makes these types of situations more impactful. And yeah. so I, which, yeah, I mean, I like, you know, if it, if it were me, I, I don't know, like I would be, I would, I would definitely be curious, but I don't know if I'd just be instantly calling everybody. Yeah. So See, that's, to yeah, play, that, you got to think about that too. For sure. To play devil's advocate, one could also say that hearing a lot of other people's sightings could also encourage people to make up a sighting just to be part of the. Experience. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, I I agree right. with that too. I mean, that's that's another downside to this. Yeah, is that you know that just kind of you know, five minutes of of glory and fame for a minute yeah. just to be on display, right? Right. That bandwagon effect. Exactly. Yeah. See, that's why whenever I'm whenever I'm researching a UFO sighting. I always initially get excited if there are a lot of sightings and eventually I'm like, I don't know if this is a a good thing. I don't know if this makes right. it more compelling or less compelling. Right. I don't know. It's tricky. Yeah, I agree. I and agree like, for sure. In reference to what I was saying about whether you call the radio first or the police first, I realized, okay, so I live in a very small town, you know, just for the listeners, I live in a very small town and there's of course this like Facebook page for the town and people report everything <laughs> yeah. on it. Right. Well, I've, I've so, seen like, that page. <laughs> yeah. It's obnoxious. Um, yes. It's absurd. Like every time there are police sirens anywhere in the town, you can just go on this page and there are 11 people telling you why there are police sirens. Right. Right. Yep. But, like, it made me think, like, if a, if an alien craft crashed into the forest near this small town I live in, it would 100% be reported to that Facebook page before the police heard about it. Yeah, no, I, I'm sure you're right. Yeah. And that's just the modern equivalent of calling a radio station. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 
that's yeah. I I I I wouldn't I wouldn't have kind of thought about it like that, you know. But yeah. you're definitely right. I mean, there's like especially pages like that, like in those types of communities, like people will like you know you know you know what everybody's doing because yeah. of people on there, which like I think is very you know can definitely have a lot of negative effects to it but at the same time you know there's i'm sure there's some you know some positive some positive side that come i think out it's of it. just but i think it's just the like i think it's just the 2022 version version of um community right yeah. of like sharing your daily experience with your neighbors true right the problem is it and it pro- this is probably true in 1965 too, where most of it turns into like gossip. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yep. Yeah, that was probably always true. It's just like everything else is streamlined by the internet. Yeah, uh, that's that's one of I think the downsides of co- of course to the internet and social media and things like that. For sure. It's just it's way too accessible. It's way yeah, too it's, accessible it's, for those that use it for I feel incorrect things like yeah for the for the dark arts exactly yeah but I'm sure there's those out there you know that'll that'll argue that left and right because you know it's that whole yeah. whatever but yeah I this is it's just another reason I don't like social media <laughs> yeah for sure I think. Any of our listeners who follow us on social media are very aware that you're not a big fan of social media. I just, I, I, you know, I never have been. Obviously, for the show, I try to use it, and you know, like, I'm out there, I'm out there, especially on Twitter, doing my thing and stuff. So, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It opens Everybody me up go a little hit bit up more. Ryan. Yeah, go hit up our page on on Twitter and interact with Ryan. <laughs> Hey, I'm interacting with people all the time. We get tagged and and like these yeah. nice like big lists of podcasts to look out for and stuff, which is cool. So I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, it's definitely cool. But getting back to to the story here, <laughs> um, yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, it's it, yeah, it's it's just one of those things. So at this time period, you know, calling calling the radio and things like that was probably just that you know that way of like getting things out and then you know waiting for people to start saying it too and then them to be reporting like that probably made francis finally you know jump the gun and do it so yeah. now there were there were a couple of other uh, a couple of other i guess notable things so there was a guy by the name of james mays um he was the assistant chief of the kecksburg fire department at the time uh, he had went with the state police to an area on Coon Lane uh, where they were able to basically look down over the hill into the woods. Um, and at that point, they were he was able to show them where the downed craft appeared to be located. There were flashing blue lights coming from the area, and the lights were said to be pulsating erratically. Um, and then, so after the police determined the approximate area of the crash site, they then decided to close off the area and keep out the curious onlookers who were starting to gather there. Uh, but basically, at that point, there were already a lot of firemen searching the woods for the object, which you know we'd already known about. An assistant, uh, yeah, Assistant Chief James Mays returned with members of the police to the fire station, and upon his ar- arrival there, he found that military officials had taken over the firehouse uh, to be used as a base of operation and armed military personnel and vehicles were gathering there in numbers at that point. But this yeah. is another one he was able to show them by going down this road, this Coon Lane, uh, and being able to look into uh, into the forest area and actually see you know where this craft was. You could see you know these lights emitting off of it and everything. And there were several other reports that I read of other other random people that would take this road and try to go out and this is after the military had finally taken over and they would you know try to go in that off of that road of course you can see you know where this object is try to go in and then being stopped um by military personnel there was actually one guy that uh uh he was uh bob getty he was a news reporter 
um, tasked with doing a story on the Kecksburg incident. So he was, you know, obviously was there after John Murphy. Um, but when he got there, the military had already closed it off. He tried to go in and they told him to turn around. Otherwise he'd be arrested. Okay. And so, you know, like, yeah, a lot of this kind of just coming together. Um, so the Lieutenant fireman fellow, he saw lights on the craft. Yeah. The, the assistant chief. Yeah. Could actually see the lights coming from the craft, uh, in the forest. Okay. And that's that that blue light that I was talking about, kind of like uh, that appeared to be like uh, like an arc welder, uh, light. yeah, or a welder huh. like the arc coming off of it. Yeah, that's now so, that's interesting. Exactly. So you have more more and more reports that definitely support it. And this is where we're going to get into some more of the weird, um, yeah, kind of uh, real quick stuff here. Yeah, um, yeah. Before you get weird. That I mean the the pulsating lights makes me think like sixties era satellite. You know uh, what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I can, and it's I can that see like that. pod shape. Uh-huh. Yeah. We're huh. we're gonna we're gonna get into that as well. So I've, I okay. like I said, I have I have some additional That's also an established theory. additional thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So okay. I tried I tried to dive pretty deep here and cool. you know, give us a lot of supporting facts before we start to dive into the theories and what what it okay. is, you know, what it could be. Yeah, let's let's jump um, into the weird and then, then so we'll get to some just theories. a couple a couple things. Um so some people had seen these like six by six military vehicles, um like convoy, things like that, and then also saw this flatbed trailer with this big dome shaped object on it covered in a tarp. All right. Classic. Yes. Um, that was hauled away from the forest. Uh, from this from this area in the Kexford <laughs> yeah. Woods. <laughs> so it was described as uh, basically like some type of a flatbed trailer. Uh, supposed, uh, supposedly delivered an object to Lockbourne Air Force Base near Columbus, Ohio. Where it made a temporary stop and then moved on to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton. Uh, at that point, it was placed in an unspecified building and heavily guarded by security. Uh, one military police officer had came forth, uh, name is unknown, of course, uh, came forth and claimed that he was in charge of guarding the object. So he was with it for the full trip. Right. So I was going to say, how the hell do they know Like it went from this base and then later to that base? Like, Did someone follow and stake them out the whole, right, exactly. the whole day? Now, another thing that's kind of cool, um, but you know, this one I, I, I'm going to take with a grain of salt for sure. So in the 90s, two people gave information that they may have seen the Kecksburg UFO at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Um, two individuals identified as Myron and J.S., both work for a brick manufacturing company in Ohio. They claimed that they were delivering a special order of brick and un, uh, to and were to unload next to a big building at the complex. So JS had done the first delivery. Um, he said that he delivered for the first load, um, and while he was there, saw a bell-shaped object sitting on a flatbed trailer outside of the building. And then okay. the next time they delivered, both JS and Myron delivered the next load. And the object had already been unloaded off the trailer. The trailer sat there empty. While they were there unloading the brick, Myron went to the building, uh, went to the building and looked through, uh, well, looked through an open door and saw a bell-shaped object and men working on it, uh, basically with cutting torches and an effort looked like to gain entry. So Myron, okay. at that point, said that he had talked to a worker there and asked what they were doing, and they basically told him they were having trouble cutting a hole in the object and believed it could contain radiation or possibly bodies. Uh, he was told that the brick was going to be used to build a wall around the object to act as a radiation shield. And then Myron also went on to say, that he also saw what appeared to be a body covered uh, covered in a sheet or covered with a sheet, uh, basically with like a hand sticking out. And when they asked like <laughs> what this body looked like, he said it looks like basically what you would expect an extraterrestrial to look like. Oh Christ! 
So, yeah. Again, take it with a grain of salt. You know, this is this is in the 90s yeah. and these people are recounting back from the 60s. I don't know. You know, that sounds good enough. Okay, like, so why not? <laughs> to clarify, to clarify in the story, they saw it in the 60s. But they didn't tell the story until the 90s. They didn't right, they didn't tell it until the 90s. They finally came okay. forth. That's why they went by the names Myron and JS. They'd um, just seen enough episodes of the X-Files by then. Maybe. To, <laughs> to get it together. Yeah. Um, you know, Man, I don't know. Because, of course, there was, uh, there, there, there was a documentary um, put together by a world-famous, uh, I mean, one of the most like well-known people that knew like the Hexburg incident. Yeah. Um, which, uh, if you give me a few, I'll, I'll remember his name, but I, for some reason, can't think of it right now. Um, but regardless, so he was putting together a documentary uh, about Kexburg, the untold story. And this was back in the 90s. Um, and, you know, and these people had came forth and were interviewed. Okay. Um,. I was just trying real quick to find out when the Unsolved Mysteries episode aired. It was season three. I know that. Uh, season three, yeah. episode two? One and two. Yeah, one and two. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. <laughs> um, yeah. I just don't know. Because it had to be in the 90s, right? Right. Yeah. It was It was aired in the 90s. Because um, that... Because that that show brought out all kinds of crazy like tips and calls and yeah of course that definitely could have precipitated that and that could account have, by yep, and that JS could have been and, right yeah right there along with it yep yeah so yeah I, I like I said I thought that was kind of weird it was worth noting um you know it's it's one of those that are just a little too good right yeah you know? I, I agree that's why i said you know take it with a grain of salt but yeah. it sounds good you know definitely sounds good now yeah i mean it's a cool story i i wish it, i hope it's true right awesome. exactly so another thing i thought the whole the whole time you were telling it i thought that they saw it in the 90s oh <laughs> <laughs> like 30 years later and i'm like oh, they waited 30 years to cut into it no no I, yeah, yeah yeah i get it now okay but the fact that they were delivering brick and the brick to be used as like a you know a radiation barrier yeah. basically like that makes a lot of sense that i mean that again that could fall in line with it being a soviet craft right and with right. It, them saying it might have bodies inside yeah like yeah yeah exactly exactly so another another pretty cool thing is uh, in 1966 in the February issue of Sky and Telescope uh, it was reported that 20 uh, there were 23 reports regarding the fireball in the sky uh, rece- were received by the Federal Aviation Administration from various aircraft pilots uh, all seeing this too witnessing you know this object that's crazy yeah and yeah. this was so again corroborated by people in the sky who are actually up flying during right the time exactly period. hmm so pretty cool on that one yeah that feels very real so now we'll get into we'll get into some of the theories all right yeah let's hear some let's hear some craziness all right so um, so a theory, there is a theory that uh, was presented, which stated that a Soviet Union Venus space probe, the Cosmos 96, may have crashed at Kecksburg. The Soviet craft developed a problem when it launched and did not make it out of the Earth's orbit. Uh, according to the United States Space Command, the Cosmos 96 crashed in Canada around 3 a.m. that same day, which is over 12 hours before the crash at Kecksburg around 4.45 p.m. And so that's where the time difference is a little different on that one. But again, we'll we'll call it that. Uh so yeah. it basically That could have also been them <clears throat> could have been them like saving face and saying like 
don't worry, American citizens, it happened in Canada. Right. When it actually happened in Kecksburg. So, yeah. So experts claim yeah. that the Cosmos 96 had the ability to maneuver itself when landing on Venus and may have done so when landing on Earth. Additionally, the special heat shield technology possessed by the probe could have allowed it to survive re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere and not burn up as it traveled along its flight path into Kecksburg. The cosmos was shaped somewhat like an acorn, which witnesses, but witnesses looking at the craft did not report seams and rivets, which would have been characteristic of a Soviet spacecraft. Right. Um, so they, they also go on to think, what if the rivets and the seams uh, could have basically been fused in the intense heat of the reentry and basically smoothed down to the point that they were unnoticeable? Um, um, yeah. So, I mean, if it was, this was, de this was designed to orbit Venus. Right. This, yeah, it was the, yeah, the Soviet Union Venus, uh, wow, Venus space yeah. probe. <laughs> okay. So if it was designed to orbit Venus, it probably would not have melted at all in Earth's atmosphere. Cause Venus is, you know, like 300 kelvin it's like way hotter right than Earth's so yeah atmosphere. due to i mean that's what i was saying basically due to the special heat shield technology that yeah. the space probe you know, had of course which... i think it's probably more likely if that's the case that they just didn't notice the rivets you know that's possible but all the reports stated that there there were no seams or rivets or anything yeah. Um, it also could have been laying in a in a way, it could have been laying on the ground in a way to where the, the rivets weren't showing. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, true, true. Like yeah, yeah, because there was the part that was kind of buried, you know, in the ground on on the impact. Yeah. Now, so an additional theory which has come up in the United States military or is it the United States military uh, and the United States government and NASA might have been interested in recovering the technology on board of the craft. Since its crash trajectory was way off course, they may have thought that they could retrieve the craft and write it off to the public as an unrecover unrecovered meteorite. Yeah. Uh, so basically, at that point, if necessary, if necessary, they would claim basically it could have been a UFO as well. You know, trying to get the tech, basically. Yeah, trying to grab up the Soviet tech. Yeah. So, and at that point, they wouldn't have want the word to get out that they had recovered a foreign spacecraft. Uh, because in 1962, uh, the United Nations International Treaty that required them to return any downed spacecraft that might be recovered. So, yep. in this case, there would have been the special heat shield along with any technology that was inside. Um, some experts say that there would have also been a compact nuclear reactor inside to power the craft. This could explain yeah. the numerous warnings given to curious people about the danger of radiation. And also, yeah. the reports to authorities carrying with them what appeared to be Geiger counters. Yep. Although I think Geiger counters were pretty, like I said, standard issue right. at the time. Because yeah. everyone was super terrified. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I like that theory. So the part, though, <laughs> with this about it touching down in Canada then. Um, so the part that landed in Canada could have been part of the rocket booster jettisoned by the, uh, the cosmos and that the probe itself actually ended up landing in Kecksburg. Yeah. So that, that's where at least the Canada part comes in, you know, comes into play for sure. And then, yeah. So, and then that, that could have been what, what was taking that right Patterson air force base. Yeah. Now, there's another really cool theory, and this one revolves around uh, World War II, basically. Okay. So, another, uh, so basically, another theory presented is that the acorn space or shaped craft was actually a Nazi bell known as uh, what? Diglaka? Diglake? Diglaki? Uh -huh. Something like that. I, I can't remember the pronunciation. Which was a type of weapon that the, that Nazi Germany was trying to perfect during World War II. The weapon is supposed to have been a yeah supposed to have basically used a purple colored liquid, a radioactive yeah. liquid, uh, containing rapidly rotating cylinders, which would go off uh, give off a large amount of radiation, 
and somehow affect the space-time fabric, allowing an alteration in the flow of time. Uh, the Nazis hoped that it could be used as a weapon to win World War II. <laughs> if perfected, it would have given them the ability to freeze time on the battlefield so that the Nazi forces could have advanced right up to their ally or to the Allied forces and then unfreeze time, permitting them to have the element of surprise against the <laughs> opponent. <laughs> Which I think is, Dude, is hilarious. I love I love magical Nazi theories. There are so many. Oh yeah. There's this like sure. there's this weird underbelly to the like Fortean community that like that have all these crazy theories about the Nazis like secret bases on Antarctica and like all these like insane theories. Yeah. Um this one's right up there. Yeah. Yeah. Hats off. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's fantastic. The, the ability to stop time. Yeah. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Wild. It's, it's actually, yeah, it's actually really funny. Um, but that's what uh, some thought that this could also be. Because. I mean, that's a great Captain America comic. <laughs> yeah. You're not <laughs> wrong. Yeah. You're not wrong. So, yeah, that I think that's probably one of my favorites, just because of how out there and silly it is. Yeah. Um, but, of course, the the idea of it being, you know, that Cosmos 96, I think, uh, you know, holds holds a lot of ground. Um, yeah. For me. For sure. So. Especially, like, I don't know, it explains it acting like a craft, because it was a craft in this theory, right? And right, with the ability to change its directory, like trajectory yep. rather, um, and like be able to move and and kind of you know manipulate itself, and so yeah, yep. which is just like this did, changing its course and its pathing. Yeah, um, and it explains the the response to it. Yeah, it explains the like cover up. It yeah, exactly, and that's that's, that's one of the big things is the actual cover up, the fact that yeah, you know like. Because they're breaking the Geneva Convention. Yeah. They got to cover that shit up. It basically would have turned the woods in Kecksburg into a government black site. Right? They would have shut that shit down. Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that goes against, like, that whole entire, that yeah, that whole entire thing. Treaty. So, yep. Yeah. So, yeah, to me, that makes the most sense. Uh, but I, I, like, I also, I, you know, I'm not going to dismiss, you know, some of the other things that they're seeing, but again, you know, that like them, like these, especially the pilots and things like that, seeing this thing in the sky, that could have also been what it was. I think I lean toward it being the spacecraft, the Soviet craft, but yeah. they could have just as easily been an actual, you know, alien craft, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Probably not a Nazi time machine. Probably not, unfortunately. Unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> With some purple radioactive fluid that can alter time. Yeah. The space-time fabric. <laughs> yeah. I like how people just, like, make shit up. Right. It's like, just like... Why? Like, it's, why? That's just, that's just hilarious. Like, it doesn't... Like, there's no way that could ever hold up. Yeah, it. I'm so happy that we live in a universe that includes so many people who can sit and record themselves for YouTube with a straight face, just using verbiage from sci-fi movies, right? Like it's reality. Yeah, it's know? like flat earthers. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. I mean, how can you say that with a straight <laughs> yeah. face? Yeah, so many do. <laughs> I know, so many do. No, applaud. I applaud them for like that's an insane level of self assuredness <laughs> to be <laughs> to be able to say that. I mean, that's just right up there at that Nazi Nazi yeah, yeah. purple goo that can stop time, right? I don't know. I it b- kind of bums me out that it became such a thing that flat Earth became such a thing because I used to think about it like the same way i think about like hollow earth theory where like oh man that's a lot of fun and it's like this cool thing that probably isn't real but like it's fun to think about obviously not real you know right but so are most of them yeah um 
But it used to be fun to think about until they became like militant assholes all over the internet. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Some flat earthers became like a way too far. Yeah. I think it was like 2017 or 2018, sometime around that, that around that time, flat earthers became like a full blown internet cult. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's still going, which is crazy to me. I, it sucks though. Cause I would like to, I would, I would have loved to eventually do like an episode on like the ice wall, the idea of like the ice wall yeah. in Antarctica yeah, true, and true. stuff like that. I mean, right? like there's the idea of it, the idea of it, you know, I, I think is fun to play with, but like, yeah, yeah just, you know, out of fully believing anything like that, I think is so silly. It's, yeah, it's pretty wild. I mean, they're, it's right on par with hollow earth. Honestly, like we have plenty of established science that tells us what's under us. Right. We've never been like, there. I mean, sure we have, we've drilled super deep and not found any mile wide, you know, hundreds of miles deep cavernous bodies. No, like secret cities. <laughs> no, none of that. Unfortunately, that, so, I don't know. I think of I think of stuff like that as just like a really... I don't know like if I put really, in the same field, though. Like, you just like Hollow Earth better because it has dinosaurs. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I also like Journey I just to the think of, of the them Earth, as, so, you know. Yeah, like, that's, yeah, it's my favorite I, book of I all love, time. I love that concept. But, like, I just think of both of them as, like, fun thought experiments. Right. Right? Like, just spend a little bit of time sitting down thinking, like thinking about it as if it were real you know what i mean yeah it's fun that's fair the flat earth internet cult made it not fun anymore right so fucked it guys (laughs) 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 all right so back to this yeah personally i i buy into it's most likely this this piece of this cosmos 96 you know like makes a whole lot of sense yeah it explains like you said the cover-up all of that um you know at the end of the day i want it to be obviously a downed extraterrestrial like otherworldly craft but yeah you know like maybe these hieroglyphs were just some unspoken russian alphabet or something like or like language yeah like maybe very some some secret language or something like i don't know sure who knows it could have been a fucking inside joke between two of the engineers who worked on it right exactly exactly so it could have been anything yeah it could have been there to literally throw people off yeah yeah but yeah that honestly that's that's kind of where where i lean unfortunately yeah, sadly, I'm right there with you. I, I think that's almost definitely what it was. Yeah. I think this was like, at most, this was evidence of the United States taking advantage of the situation to try and swipe some Soviet tech. I think one takeaway, though, is it was obviously not a meteor. Yeah, definitely not a meteor. Definitely a government cover-up. I just don't think they were covering up aliens in this case. They yeah. were covering up their own shitty geopolitical decisions. But if it was aliens, excellent. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I, lo- I love a reality where it's aliens. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that concludes today's episode. The Kecksburg UFO incident. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. From the bottom of our weird, possibly alien, maybe ghostly, probably cryptid hearts for listening. We absolutely love having the chance to discuss all these wild creatures and events every week, and it's your continued attention that allows us to carry on. And if you want more, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash campfire tales of the strange and unsettling. It's there you will find bonus content behind the scenes. We're just keeping up on our day to day and maybe some swag along the way. It is our way to show thanks for your support 
and do everything we can to provide you with as much content as possible. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash campfire tales of the strange and unsettling. With that said, we want to get to know each and every one of you, so please come and check us out on all the socials at campfire.tales.podcast on Instagram and Facebook, at campfire.totsau on Twitter, and you can also visit our website at campfirepodcastnetwork.com. If you love the show, please rate and review it. It's what truly helps us continue bringing your weekly dose of the strange and unsettling. And lastly, we do have our merch store. You can find the link available on all of our social media or via our link tree. Show your support. Buy a shirt, buy a sticker, buy a blanket, buy a pillow, anything that you want to rep Campfire Tales of the Strange and Unsettling. And a special thanks to Greg Martin at Reverent Music on Instagram, the brilliant mind behind the gorgeous music that you hear each week behind the debrief. So go find him at reverentmusic.bandcamp.com or you can visit his Spotify page by searching Reverent, R-E-V-E-R-E-N-T. All of these links can be found in the episode description. Go and support him. You both deserve it. And that's it. Until next time, I'm Ryan. I'm Jordan. And remember, campers, stay weird and trust in the unknown.